waiting for Gary, the master of ceremonies, to just change every single morning to the order of me first and then Larry. Because if you've ever done a little bit of speaking, it's much easier to speak. Well, it's not easier, Larry. I don't mean that. It's tough to take it off. But selfishly, it's easier to sit down after you're finished and enjoy the message and take notes anyway. We hope you've taken good notes at this stage. And we're just going to read on with our topic here in John chapter 21. Carrying on here with these thoughts concerning the commission of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we spent some time, of course, at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now we're back into this Gospel of John. We made brief note yesterday concerning the positioning of this Gospel in the New Testament record, and particularly this chapter, how it lies at the completion of the Gospels and at the commencement when these saints are ready to go forth in the name of the Lord we're going to find a tremendous summary concerning the direction in which they go and what they're called to do and the focus of their ministry. And let's go ahead and read then in John 21 a few of these initial verses and then carry on here with some thoughts we trust the Lord has for us in this chapter. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Canaan Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. Now we began yesterday just by thinking a little bit along these lines, the togetherness now of these apostles, of these disciples of the Lord. You notice the first phrase in the chapter, after these things, and so before these things, they were not together, were they? But now they're together in unity. The Lord calls them together, they all come to Him. Now, as we go into the book of Acts, one thing that we're going to find out is so critical is just this same thing. The unity of the brethren. Endeavor to hold, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because when there isn't unity, there is failure. And where there is unity, the Old Testament essentially says, what can be withheld from them? Remember Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And all of these nations coming around. And they weren't doing what the Lord requested of them. They were building up themselves a a great and mighty edifice. As if they could reach to heaven. But the Lord looks down and says in unity, what can almost be withheld from them? And so he confuses their tongue. But here these disciples are now together. They're, They're fellowshipping, we said. How striking it was that Thomas, who was just absent, is now with them. And each one of them in their struggles are together to have a manifestation of the Lord Himself. And of course, it doesn't take us long to notice who it is that they come together around. The central individual in their lives is, of course, the Lord Jesus. He's the one that draws us together. All hands on deck and in unity. Today, we trust that's the case in our local churches and amongst the assemblies in California, and in this country. been hearing a little bit about some of the assemblies in Honduras, 300 of them. 
And they're together in unity, the brother said, in agreement. And they're going out into the fields which are white and establishing local church bodies together, helping one another. What can be withheld from the saints as they fellowship together and work together in unity? Now, we know that there are seven men here at the beginning of this chapter, but As Larry's been saying at the end of Genesis, it's really a story about Jacob and about his family. We're going to note here that Simon Peter is going to come before our attention. And truly the rest of this chapter in many respects are going to center around him. And the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit through this writer, is going to bring us to the circumstances surrounding Simon Peter at this time. Now there were six other men here at least. And I would be pretty certain, I know it's conjecture purely, but would be pretty certain that the Lord had a time just like he did with Peter and just as poignant and just as strong as he did with Peter, perhaps with each and every singular individual here. What we have recorded is the Lord's time with Peter because our God is a personal God. And Simon Peter says, and here's where I said yesterday, I'm beginning to get into trouble. He says, I go fishing. The Lord asked them to meet him by the seaside. And they're waiting, aren't they? Now, the Lord had found them at the same place in the same circumstance before. And I don't doubt that it went through their minds that the Lord found us here once. He can do it again. And they get up in the morning. They're waiting for the Lord. Brother and sister, the mundane, practical things in life take up the majority of our life. I'm not sure what you're like. But I am absolutely frustrated almost every day of my life. And it's a tremendous weakness that I have because of the time that has to be spent in the mundane things in life, just existing. But the Lord created it this way, didn't he? The Lord made it that for some reason we have to sleep five, six, seven, eight hours every single night. That's a third of my life. And it seems like a waste, doesn't it? But we have to. And we get up in the morning and... I mean, we don't shave oftentimes because that takes time. And if we could have long hair and it was okay with Scripture and we didn't have to shave, boy, that'd be a blessing. If we were back in the garden, we didn't have to get dressed every morning. I mean, that's odd to us, obviously. But I remember the story of Einstein. He sat down at one point and he said, I'm going to figure out how long or how much of my life it's going to take me to pay attention to my socks. And so he figured the wash time, the dry time to take them out and set them somewhere. Then he had to fold them and put them in his drawer. Then he had to find them in his drawer every single morning. Then he had to put them on not one but two feet every single day. And he figured that it was going to take something like, you know, five or six weeks of his life to deal with his socks. And so he said, I'm not wearing socks anymore. And evidently he didn't. I don't know. (laughs) But, But that's what life is like, isn't it? And the Lord has for some reason designed it that way. That we have to eat. I keep telling my wife, she loves good health food. If she could just develop something healthy enough that you could put inside of a clear capsule that you could take on the first day of every month and be done for the month, that would be a blessing. Don says no, that would be a blessing. But the Lord has designed every aspect of life for His good. And when we lay our head down at night, And when we sit down at the table, not only do we have wonderful fellowship as we're going to find in this chapter, but we have to say to the Lord, we have need of thee every single hour. 
And these men, they had needs, didn't they? And Peter says, I go a fishing. And at least together, now you may give a different application to it, and that's perfectly fine. I'm sure it's a better one. But you might find some things following on here. They, they say it's time to eat. Peter says, and the rest join right in. They chime in, and immediately it says they go out. But the Lord is going to show them something very particular, even in the natural, normal, simple things in life. And that is that the Lord himself is always our guide, is always our director. Yes, we redeem the time because the days are evil. And that may mean common, ordinary things in life. It may mean the tremendous sharing of the gospel as the metaphor and as the picture is here as we know. But one thing we know, that in everything we do, we want to be together in it and we want to be following the Lord in it they see a certain person on the seaside and you notice that they don't recognize him it could have been fairly early the distance was somewhat great he calls out to them and says children do you have any food any meat and they answer him with almost uncharacteristic brevity no we don't we have nothing and he says unto them cast the net on the right side of the ship and ye shall find they cast therefore And now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. I'd like you at least to do this, to compare this story with Luke chapter 5. In Luke chapter 5, the Lord said to cast the nets, singular or plural. Luke chapter 5, does anybody remember? The Lord says cast the nets. What did they do? They cast the net, didn't they? And as a result, thank the Lord they cast the net. It's, it's obedience to some perspective anyway. But they cast the net and the net begins to break and they start filling the boats and they have all kinds of struggles. Here they were obedient. The Lord says, cast the net. Now, Dave and Larry are fishermen. I'm sure that you can go up to them and ask them what six feet what kind of difference six feet makes in dropping your line. But it makes all the difference when the Lord is directing. And these men, they cast their net on the side. And now it says that the net was sufficient. It was a voluminous amount of fish. But there was no schism in the net. They didn't try even to haul it into the boat. They just drugged the nets to the shore. And we're going to find out some fun things concerning these nets. They cast... They were not able to draw it, says verse 6, for the multitude of fishes. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved, this one who is close to the Lord, who loves the Lord and whom the Lord loves in response, and he always seems to have that sensitivity and that recognition. And he says it's the Lord. And Simon Peter in his response, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, and he cast himself into the sea, And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with fishes. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid thereon and bread, it says. There's a difference now in their obedience, isn't there? What the Lord said, they just did. And by the direction of the Lord, A tremendous drought of fishes was going to be given unto them. Going along this idea of our everyday life and the responsibilities in it, Peter, 
He's the headliner, right? In this story. He knows it's the Lord. Peter's the headliner. He, he pops on his coat. He dives into the water. He's the one we're paying attention to, the man of action. And he swims to shore. What would have happened if every single one of them did the same thing? There would have been problems, wouldn't there? No ship. No net. No fish. And every single one of them had their work. And some stayed with the boat. And some had to pull it to shore with great effort. And some had to control the fish that were in the net and hold that net. And they all had their part. And eventually, they all arrive at the seashore. And it says this, that they recognize now that it's the Lord. But the first thing they come to when they were come, verse 9, was a warm fire of coals, fish laid thereon, and bread. It's a full meal. And Jesus says unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. And Simon Peter went up. He goes back now to help the others. And he drew the net to land full of great fishes. And hundred and fifty-three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Thank the Lord for the power of the gospel. And that an individual that receives the Lord Jesus by faith shall know never perish. We have an eternal security which finds its security in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that may find insecurity they feel in their own salvation, it's because they're looking to themselves for their salvation, is it not? Instead of to the completed, finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you can tell me exactly what the 153 fish stand for, well, then you're a far better man than I. But what catches my attention is this. 153. If it was 150, you might say, okay, they were sort of rounding, right? Or 100, they were rounding. But somebody or all of them took the time to take that big net and one by one by one count it up to 153. I don't read about this anywhere else in any of the other fishing stories in the New Testament. But they counted the detail. Every single last one had a number. Every single last one had been counted. Oh, the Lord knows those that are His. But as the Lord is speaking to us in our gospel ministry, every singular soul is critically important. And now as He's going to call us on to shepherd these fish, which are now transformed into sheep, every singular soul is critically important. And so by the Lord's direction... These men are working in their normal daily life. And they have an opportunity to do something at the Lord's beck and call. And the result is literally miraculous. Now, for those of us that have missed a morning prayer meeting or two, we've missed on all, all the stories, missed out on all the stories of different individuals who have had brief times or extensive times to share the gospel with people here around Yosemite. It's a privilege, isn't it? It's just during our normal everyday work. We're here, in some sense, eating and fellowshipping and and walking and exercising and sleeping. But the Lord miraculously gives us someone or an opportunity, and we trust the Lord by His grace to take it. And the Lord can do miraculous things with it. 
We're just going about our daily duties. We're just fishing, providing food, caring for our families. And the Lord gives us a miraculous invitation and a miraculous meeting. And we trust to be faithful with it, to draw in souls so that we can begin to add to this 153. But as our time is fleeing here, let's move on to verse 11. Simon Peter, as we read, went up and he drew the land to fishes or drew the land to the fishes to shore. And for all of them, the net was not broken. Now, Jesus saith unto them, come and dine. None of the disciples dared ask him, who art thou, knowing it was the Lord. Jesus then cometh and taketh bread and giveth them and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself, it says, to his disciples after that he was risen from the dead. So these disciples come to land. And the Lord Jesus in his invitation to this wonderful, I like to call it the the real last supper. I mean, we know of other last suppers in the New Testament, but this is the latest one that I can find anyway. It's the invitation of the Lord. He calls them with the simple word come, just like he had many years before, not too many years, a few years before by the same seashore. And he doesn't say unto them, come and help me fillet the fish. Or come and help me warm the fire. He says, just come and sit down and eat. And everything's already been prepared. And I really believe that at the central portion of this chapter, as we've looked at fellowshipping and and fishing, and now we move into feasting, that in all of our gospel work and in all of our gospel ministry, And I'll bet that you can talk to Russ, who's been sharing, um, and Grant, who have been doing these boards during the evenings uh, outside of Curry Village here and have done it many, many times, many days in different places on the beaches of California and so on, that they would say to you that ultimately their satisfaction in the work of God is not the numbers of souls that are saved, or even the joy that it is to see them saved, which is something the Lord gives to us because He's going to allow them to bring their own fish also. But ultimately, it is the communion and the presence and the joy that it brings to God's heart that we're working with Him. Now, we made reference to these missionaries earlier in the week in Turkey who had labored a lifetime, seen two people saved, And then they're taken into eternity by their wives on the day of their baptism. And he has, as it were, no fish to show. Not too long ago, we read the book, my wife and grandmother and I, uh, when we were together for a short week, Angola Beloved, and the work of T. Ernest Wilson, and how the work of God in Angola expanded so wonderfully and miraculously, and not only hundreds of souls saved, but tens upon tens of local churches established. And at the end of his life, a person who's laboring in the, in the fishing fields of Galilee or wherever it may be, might see hundreds or thousands of souls saved. But those two different individuals and their two different circumstances, we know when it comes to the end, 
It's not well done, thou good and fruitful servant. It's well done, thou good and faithful servant. And in the end, those two men, as they stand before the Lord, have the same wonder and the same provision because it's the Lord himself that we feast upon and that we work for. And I really believe that that's going to be a central aspect of not only the book of Acts, but of our lives today. It's one of the reasons we count the Lord's Supper so critically important in our life. Because we come and we taste and see that the Lord is good. And we partake in a feast that is 2,000 years old. The menu hasn't changed, by the way, in 2,000 years. Occasionally I'll go to these different restaurants and in an attempt to draw other people in. You know, they change their menus. And they change the colors on the front. And they make it look better. Not this menu. It's been the same. King of kings and Lord of lords. And we come and our appreciation is fully and finally found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so at the heart of this chapter, in all of our endeavors for the Lord and the sacrifice that that takes, and the motivation in the Lord that that takes, and the work and the sweat and the blood and the tears that it takes, our satisfaction and our fulfillment ought to be found in the Lord Jesus Himself, in our God and in His provision for us. And so they come, they sit down to eat, and they find that everything's prepared, and they have a tremendous meal together. None of the disciples dared ask Him, Who art thou, knowing it was the Lord? And Jesus cometh, He taketh bread, He giveth it them, and fish likewise, How many fish are really in this story? Be a little careful. Nessie's almost got it. There's at least probably 10 more, right? 153? Well, if there were seven men here in the Lord, maybe there were about eight more fishes as well that the Lord already had, already prepared. And then he says, you can bring your own as well. But the provision, the source of it was from the Lord himself. And now notice he says, this is the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples. There were other manifestations to, to the women and the two on the road to Emmaus precedent to this, very likely. But this is the third time that he had shown himself unto them. Remember back in John chapter 20, the preceding chapter, that on that Sunday night, the first day of the week, he stepped into their presence, Thomas not being with them. And then the next first day of the following week, Those many days later, he steps again into their presence, Thomas now with them. And he says, this is the third time that he's manifested himself unto them. Now, Peter was there as far as we know the other two times. Peter had experienced visually and through his ears and probably in every other sense, the glories of the resurrected body and the resurrected Lord. But now Peter's here again, and and the Lord chooses this right time, this this special time, to begin to deal with the heart of Peter. And we go from three times the Lord manifesting himself to three questions. And so in verse 15, we begin to move from this idea of feasting and our satisfaction being in the Lord alone to this idea of feeding or of shepherding. And the Lord is going to strike, and this is a passage I'm sure that you have heard spoken on many times, and we'll move through it fairly quickly, but it never hurts us to lay our eyes upon it again. 
And he says, when they had dined, then Jesus says to Simon Peter. This just comes to mind. We were having some fellowship back home uh, not too many nights ago, frankly, uh, a couple of weeks ago or less. And it was a hymn sing. And, And a brother got up to pray after we had finished singing for about an hour, hour and a half, and we were having some finger foods, and he was thanking the Lord for the time of singing and of, and of uh, <clears throat> now for the food. And he said some interesting things, I thought, in his prayer. He said, thank the Lord for the many hours that has been put in in this home before we ever arrived. And we thank the Lord for the many hours that will be put in and sacrifice after we all leave. And then he said this. He said, thank you also for the humility of this home. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? When you have people into your home and you you show hospitality, in many ways it's a humbling thing. You never quite feel like the food's quite right, for one. And then they go into your bathroom and open the medicine cabinet or whatever, you know, or they check the white glove treatment on top of the doors or something always happens that's relatively embarrassing. That's what hospitality is, isn't it? Opening ourselves up. And the Lord, in wonderful hospitality, draws them together. And I'll say this in addition, that it seems like, at least from my young experience as a Christian, that after mealtimes were the real learning times. Many times after Sunday lunch, we'd sit around and discuss the things of the Word or what had transpired that Sunday morning, what was shared that Sunday morning. And so fellowship is a wonderful thing. Dining is a wonderful thing. Be given to hospitality, says Scripture. And the older I get, the more important I think that statement may just be. It shows our love to the saints and our humility and openness before the saints. Be given to these things. And the Lord Himself displays it here. And when they had dined, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now you have been taught many times that these words for love are going to, that are going to be used are slightly different. In the Lord's case, it is the word agape, or this, this divine, sacrificial, deep love. If you were to look back at John 14 and verse 21, it is used of God Himself and His love for us. It's, a, it's an amazingly deep love. And the word that Peter is now going to respond to him with is, is a lesser love, more of a human love. Phileo love. And so he says, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? And he saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, feed my lambs. Now, a couple of things just to take note of here. First of all, it's this interesting statement. And think it through a little bit. Do you love me more than these? He says to Peter, more than these what? There's a very good answer. More than these fish. Do you love me more than these souls that have been saved? They mean a lot to us, right? Do you love me more than what? Now, Simon Peter, his brother, James, John, they left probably a thriving business And the joy of fishing behind, right? It could have been these things. Do you love me more than the normal things in life? The satisfying things in life? The fishing that you've just experienced? It could have been, do you love me more than these 
disciples, these brethren. One of them was Simon Peter's brother. Another one was John that Simon Peter was very close to. Do you love me more than these other brethren that are around you? Do you love me more than these brethren love me? Do you love me more than these men love me? There are a lot of options here, aren't they? And the Lord, I think, purposefully leaves it open because it seems to cover everything and say to us, do you love me, Peter? Above it all, above all others. And he strikes to the root of it, doesn't he? We might have said, knowing Peter's denial, that the Lord would have said something like this, Lord, will you ever deny me again? Or Peter, will you ever deny me again? Or Peter, why did you deny me? Or, I mean, there are a lot of questions that we might come up with in our own minds to state to Peter. Peter, what was your weakness? But the Lord, in his infinite wisdom, shoots the arrow right at the heart, doesn't he? And he knows that if he has Peter's love, if he has Peter's attention and love, that he has everything all about Peter. And so he strikes at the heart of it. And he uses this wonderful statement for divine love. And Peter, and I believe in humility, says, Lord, you know that I have the greatest love that I can possibly conjure up for you. It may not be a divine love. It may not be the sacrificial that love that it should be. But Lord, I do love you. In fact, we're not really going to get Peter's emotion until the third time the Lord asks him that. And then the emotion pours forth out of Peter's life. But he says, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And I really like that phrase, brother and sister, because what Peter does, you see his, you see him beginning to grow in the Lord. What you and I would have done is to say this, Lord, you know that I love thee. Just ask these other disciples. Lord, you know that I love thee. Just look at what I've done. Lord, you know that I love thee. I, you know, forewent this to do this for you, right? I, I gave up this to do this or He starts pointing to actions or we start pointing to things that we've done or we start calling on other people. But Peter is recognizing the omniscience of the Lord as we read in Psalm 139 on Wednesday night. And he says, Lord, I'm calling upon your heart and your mind and your knowledge to recognize that I love you. No fig leaves, they're gone. And Peter's opening himself up to the Lord. And he says unto him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? And of course, he he leaves off that phrase, does the Lord Jesus now, of comparative to others. And he says unto him, yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The same two words being used. And now he says unto him, feed my sheep. It is interesting in in this phrase that there is some differences here. The Lord Jesus the first time said, feed my lambs. and, And that's the diminutive for sheep. We have a lovely Mexican couple in our assembly back home and the mother's name is Becky and the father's name is Luis and they have one boy and one girl. Actually, they have two girls, but one of the girl's name is Bequita and the other's is Luisito. And so it's just the diminutive, isn't it? It's the little Beckys and, and the little Luises. And he says, you feed my lambs. In this case, he says, feed my sheep. And this is the more mature ones. He's He's telling us that there are different types of sheep, aren't there? But you feed them all. And in fact, in the first phrase, it's it's the word feeding for literally giving them food. But in the second phrase here in verse 16, it is shepherd. Everything that a shepherd would do. 
Not specifically feeding now only, but everything that a shepherd would do in love for those sheep that he is shepherding. And then the third time in verse 17, he saith unto him, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me and the Lord Jesus in wonderful kindness reaches down to Peter in the word that Peter has been using. And Peter is grieved because he says unto him the third time. Not necessarily because he used a different word or came down to Peter's word. And Peter thinking, oh Lord, I wish I had that ultimate divine sacrificial love. But the mere repetition of it over and over. Lord, you know that I love you. It's not based on my works. It's not based on the words of others. You know my heart, Lord. And it grieves him. And the Lord says unto him, Feed my sheep. What a wonderful simple story of repetition and of importance of laboring for the Lord's people. Every single one of us can be either a Timothy or a Paul in the local church. We thank the Lord for our elders, do we not? And what they go through on our behalf and the misunderstandings that they have to take when we think we see the whole circumstance and all we're looking at is the tip of the iceberg and they know what's beneath it. And they have to take the hit of misunderstanding because the Lord has given them the understanding of the situation and they do something different than we would have done. Praise the Lord for an oversight that will stand for that which is scriptural and stand for the Lord in love and oftentimes cover a multitude of sins in love. And at other times, discipline, as scripture says, in love. To see that individual brought back because it's the only venue by which it could be fully done. We thank the Lord for oversight like that. But every single one of us stand as a Paul or a Timothy, in fact, as both. Because beneath us are other believers or children, either in age or in maturity. And and above us, thank the Lord, are those that we can look to and follow on after. And I really believe the Lord is speaking these to every single one of us. To have a deep-seated love for the Lord. So that we love His people and we shepherd them and care for them. Brothers and sisters, this is a hard thing in life. Because we have our own directions and our own responsibilities and our own work and our own even sometimes families and sometimes our own assemblies. And it takes a lot of sacrifice and a deep-seated love for the Lord to do what we ought to for Him and to feed a sheep and to care for the flock of the living God. One of the most astounding things I think about this story is this. That the Lord Jesus is saying to Peter, who has frankly failed him on one occasion, not, Peter, I forgive you, but I'll be paying attention. Not, Peter, I forgive you, but you're not really now worth it as far as caring for the sheep. But he bequeaths Peter with his most precious possession, the very bride of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the care of that bride. And the chastity of that bride. And the Lord gives unto him that which he loves more than anything else. That for which he has shed his blood. And he says, Peter, if you love me, feed, care for my sheep, for my bride. Isn't that an amazing thing? Amazing grace, right? 
When we think about our own lives and the tremendous responsibilities, quite frankly, that he has given unto each one of us to help in the shepherding of the Lord's people and of the bride of God, thank the Lord that he's there. Thank the Lord that he's the provision. Thank the Lord that he's the one we follow. But what a tremendous privilege it is to labor with him amongst his flock. And now Peter says, or the Lord says to Peter, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, verse 18, When you were young, you girded yourself. Peter had just done that. And you walkest whither thou wouldest, the will of an individual. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whithersoever thou wouldest not. This spake he signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, and here's our fifth statement, following, follow me. I like these simple statements that the Lord has for them in every single one of these different sections. Go fishing, cast the nets, feed my sheep, follow me. As we get older both in age and we trust in some maturity in the Lord. Times don't get easier, do they? The will does not suddenly disappear. And here's Peter at the end of his life, and Scripture says, the Lord says, that someone's going to gird you when you will not. And when you will to be carried in a certain place, that's not going to be the direction that you're going to be taken. Finals come at the end of the year, not at the beginning. And our trust has to always be placed in the Lord. Because, you see, Peter was going to be taken in this way to glorify the Lord. Our wills always have to be brought into alignment with His. And it does not become any easier as we get to the end. Our trust and our faith is still in the living God. He says unto Peter, follow me. And Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper, and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? By the way, who is the one that really asked that question back in John chapter 13? John says he was the one that stated it, right? Who is the one that asked it? Peter. Peter said, John, <laughs> why don't you ask this question of the Lord, right? Here's Peter carrying on. The Lord brings this up. John brings this up. Peter seeing him. This John, his friend, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? And Jesus says unto him, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. What a wonderful place to leave our study of this chapter. The personal fidelity that we ought to have before the Lord, before our own master, we as individuals stand and fall. And when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ, you're not going to stand in batches and say this local assembly did pretty well as a whole. It's going to be as an individual. And our trust, our solitary love, and our solitary desire ought to be to follow the Lord as the Lord has directed us. And our time is now gone, but just two short comments you may want to look at. This saying went abroad among the brethren that this disciple should not die. These two blue shirts right over here on the back, they have a verse 
reference that says Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, because these Bereans were exceptionally noble, because they didn't just trust what the Apostle Paul said or what others said. They searched the Scriptures, didn't they? We have an instance here where the brethren were saying certain things. And brethren today, it wasn't right. And they had to go back and say, what did the Lord say? And the Lord gives it again. You see, here's the solitary nature of our following. We trust the Lord. And we trust His Word alone, don't we? He's the one that we're following. Be careful, little ears, what you hear. Be careful, little mouths, what you say. We have to be careful sometimes in our own exposition of Scripture. And oh, that's a hard thing to deal with. In the own words that we share, that sometimes we put upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we follow the Lord alone, don't we? And we trust His Word alone. Thank the Lord that He's the one that is the source of all of our fellowship, that is the source of our fishing, that is the source of our feasting and of our feeding and of our following. May the Lord be blessed by this time together. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we ask Thee today, from this time on particularly, to take these words in John chapter 21 and in Jeremiah and the Psalms and in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11 and to instill the truths in in our lives through the working of the Holy Spirit that in our lives there might be a profound change, as Dave said this morning, that we would be different come this next week than we ever were before. Father, we truly do ask Thee this, that we would be doers, we would be actors, not merely hearers of the Word itself. We just thank You for our Savior, for all that He is to us today, and we commit this day unto His keeping, for our safety, for our good, and for His blessing and honor. In Jesus' name, amen.